Well, good morning, Fairfest Bible Church. It is good to be with you again. For some of you, are you going to say, wait, again? You've been here before? Uh, I have a number of times. Um, I actually have a bit of a history with you as a church going back at quite a number of years uh, to even uh, almost to your beginnings and uh, have preached here a couple of different times, including back in the summer. Uh, you invited me to come and we did that thing in the park. That was awesome. Uh, but man, it's good that you guys are back in your normal digs and uh, back to that. Praise God for all that is happening and how he's working to orchestrate those things. Um, I'm super excited to be with you today. Uh, I just want you to know you're one of my favorite churches, um, and uh, I'm not serving you as your pastor, but I always love and will always say yes to the opportunity to come and be with you uh, no matter what the role is. And so super glad for that. My name is Nate, if you don't know me, and I'm currently pastoring at a church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania called Mission Church. Uh, I'm the pastor of uh, ministry and mission development and uh, on staff with them and, and trying to help with those things. And uh, that's um, where I'm serving right now. We previously were in the city of Kuala Lumpur, Malaysia, uh, spent the last six years there pastoring an inter international church there, one that's not unlike yours, uh, where there's a lot of people moving in and out of the church because their jobs are moving them back and forth, a lot of them working for various governments um, around the world, a lot of U.S. Embassy people working uh, for the embassy there came to our church, and uh, so that was uh, a great experience, and, and the Lord kind of, in the fruit basket upset that COVID has uh, uh, caused, uh, caused my family to move back here to uh, the U.S., and so currently serving in that. Hi, Joyce. Speaking of Malaysia, that's my favorite uh, Fairfax Bible Church Malaysian anyways, and... Uh, uh, well, my, and so my favorite, and uh, <laughs> so, no, love you guys, and um, super excited to jump into God's Word. I, I just want to say, too, I was reminded as we were worshiping here today, God's faithfulness to you and your faithfulness to God. I was thinking about First Thessalonians and how Paul commends the church, that in the midst of struggling, uh, they became a church, and, and they, they now have a reputation uh, because of their perseverance in that, and in becoming a church, and, and that's a good reputation. And I was just thinking that that so fits you guys as a church as well. And, uh, and really commend you guys for continuing to stick together and moving on. And I know that you're in the midst of a leadership transition. And, uh, and praying, I pray for you guys every week uh, for whoever the next pastor is for you guys. Um, just so you know, Pastor Hang and I uh, served together in Kuala Lumpur. And so as I was worshiping, that was also a, like a heart thing too because uh, he was my worship leader for a time. And uh, those were good times, Hang. Um, praise God for you. You are a wonderful worship leader, and um, I thank you for that. I praise God for Matt and Dave and their leadership in the midst of things here, and um, looking forward to whatever God has uh, for you in the coming days. Our, our task here this morning, though, is to uh, learn a little bit more about God and uh, through His Son, Jesus Christ, and we're going to do that from the book of Matthew, uh, chapter 6. If you have, in your, have your Bibles, your phone, whatever, uh, turn to Matthew, chapter 6. We're going to be looking at a paragraph here today. Uh, let me just um, begin uh, by saying it's, it's a little bit of a complex topic that we're going to be talking about here today. Um, in the world that we uh, live in today, there's a lot of anxiety, and we're going to be talking about the topic of anxiety. And really, in, in our Christian faith, we've been influenced influenced uh, so much by an underlying philosophy. Um, actually, a, a study was done by Christian Smith a number of years ago that's basically found that in America, no matter what religion you say you follow, you're following a philosophy underneath it called the, called the moralistic therapeutic deism. 
And what he's saying there is, uh, it doesn't matter what name you put on your religion, we all want to be good, we all want to have therapy take care of our needs, and we all believe that there's a God, but he's not really actually involved in things right now. And that actually informs a lot of how we even approach this particular topic. So I bring that up to say uh, that we have to deal with a topic that oftentimes is thought about from a very therapeutic side of things, but not a lot, or at least not very thoroughly from a biblical side of things. And so even as we begin to deal with that, there's a little bit of a tightrope that we have to walk. And if you would just stick with me and walk that tightrope, I think we're going to get great clarity from God on this particular topic that will be in immensely helpful as we think about it. I know it has been for me and my life. And so stick with this. Uh, I had a friend who was driving in one of these big rainstorms a couple of weeks ago. You guys had a lot of rain recently? There's been some of that, right? It, it was dark. It was at nighttime. He was driving down the road, and it was one of those roads where there was one lane going one way, the other lane going the other way. And, and as he was driving down, suddenly he sees a car appear next to him going the same direction, which would be the wrong way on that side of traffic. In the midst of all the confusion of how hard it was raining and the darkness and all of a sudden these headlights are going past him, he's wondering what's going on. The car beside him then proceeds to to veer to the left, hit the curb, go into the ditch and crash. So he stopped and he goes back and in the midst of the rain he finds the the driver, a woman sitting there freaking out was his terminology, shaking uncontrollably, hyperventilating and saying, I have anxiety in thunderstorms. Now, I have great compassion for that woman. That's, That's a terrible place to be. But I tell the story because I think it illustrates so many times what happens to us when we get anxious about the things that are going around us in life and about the seriousness that we often struggle with when it comes to this issue of anxiety. It causes us to drive down the wrong lanes of life, crash off the road, and then we're in great trouble and we need help. We all struggle with worry and anxiety, and I think we're always trying to find comfort from it in all sorts of different places. Uh, All the time, we're seeking to have a trouble-free life in some way, and so we've gotten some words in our vocabulary that describes various versions of this from mild to intense, right? we got words like, I fret, that's an old word, I fret about stuff, or I'm discontent, or I'm obsessed. I stress out, I feel angsty, I worry, I fear, I have a loss of control, I'm over-concerned, I'm panicked, I'm restless, I'm insecure. We all use those words in various ways. We're all talking about this issue of anxiety. And so we experience heavy chests, tight backs, anger, that's not really anger, it's because I'm afraid gastrointestinal issues, racing thoughts, I fixate, I have tunnel vision, I'm sick, I've lost my appetite, I'm hyperventilating, I'm sleepless, I have a dry mouth, I melt down, I'm trapped, I'm agitated, I can't turn off my mind or my emotions. It's a pretty common thing that we would feel anxious in any of those ways. And today, the title of the message is Discover Freedom from Anxiety. Today, I want you to see what Jesus says when it comes to this issue of anxiety. 
So we're going to look at Jesus' most famous sermon. I would, I would say that the best sermon that's ever preached, been ever preached in the world. This is one of Jesus' hallmark preaching moments. It's called the Sermon on the Mount. It actually begins back in, in Matthew chapter 5 where he begins to talk about the kingdom and explain kingdom principles. And the proposition, the main idea that he makes is that if you are not more righteous than the best religious people that you know of in the world, you're not going to make it into heaven. And then he goes to show how religion actually is lowering the bar, even though we think it makes it more higher. Like, if you do all these good things, you're going to get in. And then, and then he, he actually says, no, actually, my standard's perfect. It's even more than that. And then he says, not only if you don't keep the standard, but if you're not motivated properly, if you're not motivated by proper things, if you're not seeking reward from me but from other places, you're going to actually practice what you think are good things like praying and fasting and giving wrongly. And then he goes on to say, actually, you have to value me most. And so if we were to look at the text of Scripture today, we're looking at Matthew chapter 6. We see, starting in verse 19, there's this section called laying up treasures for, your, for yourselves in heaven. And he talks about how valuable it is and don't follow the God of materialism is ultimately where it is. And that all sets the, sets the context then for anxiety. See, if you're following after the wrong gods, if you're valuing the wrong things, you're always going to become anxious. And Jesus warns us in this particular passage about this anxiety, and he says this. This is the main thing that he's saying in this passage. God will take care of you. God will take care of you. God will take care of you, so put your trust in him. I'll just tell you this. It's a super simple statement that oftentimes is very misunderstood. God will take care of me. What does that mean? What does that look like? So how to trust him, what, what exactly, like put rubber to the road, what does that actually mean? So we're going to explore this here today. Let me read the text and then we're going to uh, do a little bit of pre-work before we get right into the message. Look with me at verse 25. Jesus, remember, is preaching on the mountainside and he says, Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life. Jesus, I just want to stop there for a second. Jesus, have you seen my life? Don't you know there's a few things that I should be pretty anxious? Don't you understand what's going on? How could you make a command to not be anxious? Okay, we'll figure it out. Hang on. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is life not more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. How they grow, they neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all of his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. 
Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. I want to set a baseline of understanding of what we're talking about. Let's define anxiety for just a moment. If you go to a dictionary, you go to dictionary.com and you look it up, it says this. It's a feeling of worry, nervousness, or unease, typically about an eminent event or something with an uncertain outcome. You might be thinking, what's so wrong with that? What's, what's wrong with that? And I would just say this, the answer is complex. Remember, I said this earlier, it's complex. We're going to see later that, that Jesus, I'm going to show you, Jesus had some anxious moments. And if we believe and we know that the Bible teaches that Jesus didn't sin, then, then how was that being handled at that moment? Today, we're told not to worry. We're, we're being told to trust in the faithfulness of God. And, and yet we all struggle with worry because deep down inside there's some things that we are after, some things that are driving us. We're going to talk about internal motivations of these things that cause this. And so we see, we come to this place where we have this fear in our life and, and it's at so much at the core of, of so much of our lives. And yet we see this statement, do not be anxious about your life, but do not be anxious about anything, he says. And some people hyper-spiritualize that, and they say that you should never have any sort of anxiety, and, and, and so it's always wrong to be anxious about anything. So I was thinking about this because I was thinking about the complexity going, wait a second, Jesus, you're saying don't be anxious about anything, and that just seems so out of sorts with what we experience and even some of the things that I see him doing in Scripture. And I was very helped by, a, by an article from TGC that talked about anxiety. And they pointed out there's actually kind of four kinds of fears that cause anxiety. And I want to present them to you here this morning. So, so write this down if you're taking notes. Number one, we have God-given fears and anxieties. You need to understand that as we start here today, that God has given us an emotional response for our benefit called fear or anxiety. Now, fear is the eminent threat of danger. Something's happening right now, right here at this moment, and that's what happens when we get afraid. Anxiety is really kind of that more that long-term, low-grade headache that's always going on, but it's rooted in this fear. And so you understand that fear is God-given in the sense that when we encounter something dangerous, the fear is supposed to help us respond properly. For example, if you were, I heard a story about a woman who was living up in Alaska. Her dog started barking, and so she went to the door to figure out what it was as she opened the door onto her front porch, right around the corner was a mama moose. She knew it was a mama moose because the baby moose was there. And if you know anything about mama mooses and their babies, you know don't get between them, right? She immediately, because of the fear response, walked inside her house, closed the door quickly. <laughs> That's a God-given response that is right and good. We don't, have to, we don't have to alter that. God's given us that. There's a second kind of fear that's called a physically driven fear. This is a physiological response that is not sinful. Oftentimes, there's some sort of clinical anxiety that's going on. There's a physiological mal malfunction within us that is causing this disorder of anxiety that's within us. And I would say this, it is the result of living in a broken world. Listen, folks, war is a terrible, terrible thing. And if you've been in war, and you've come back from war, 
and you have moments of anxiety, a physiological response because you were involved in the brokenness of the world, I don't think that that's a sinful thing. I think God wants to fix that. He wants to help you with that. But he's not laying down on you and saying, you're so wrong to be anxious because you've experienced brokenness and in that way. If you've been in any sort of crisis or chaos or turmoil, not just war in this world, I think that there's moments where you're going to be anxious. And I believe that God wants you to be able to overcome that. I think that's why he has allowed us to have physicians and counselors that we should go to. Can can I just say sometimes Christians are given a bad rap because they think uh, this anxiety thing is just all spiritual and so we tell people not to go to counselors and not to go to doctors. That doesn't make any sense. That's not what Jesus is saying or I'm trying to help you understand here today. I think there's a category for that. It's called a physically driven fear. Here's a third category. It's consequence driven fear. So there's God-given fear, there's physical-driven fear, now there's consequence-driven fear. It's, I call it that because it's a natural consequence of sin. If you are involved in sin over and over and over and you are not repenting of it, you are not asking God for help for that, you instead are jumping right into it over and over again, you love your sin and so you keep doing it, that's going to create some anxiety. If you are committing adultery, you are going to have anxious moments of trying to hide those things. You're going to have anxious moments because you know it's wrong, and ultimately you're going to get caught because you always do. It's consequence-driven anxiety, and the response to this particular one is repent. Get right with God and those who you have offended, and your anxiety is going to go away. And then there's a fourth kind. There's doubt-driven fear. Doubt-driven fear is a sinful response to God's providential care. God has said, I'm going to take care of you. Cast your cares on me. And you don't. You'd rather worry about it. Really, you'd, you'd rather be in control of it or, or some, some form of, of that's going on. So you, this is a doubt-driven fear where, where the result is really that you're not trusting God and that's why you're anxious. So which one do you think Jesus is talking about here in this particular passage? I would say Jesus is not talking about God-given fear or physically driven fear, although he wants to help you from this passage if you're in that place. But really what he's confronting here today is doubt-driven fear. Doubt-driven from a lack of faith and attempt to over-control our lives is what Jesus, I believe, is speaking about in this passage when he says, do not be anxious about your life. Can I just say that as we talk about this, if you're in a place where anxiety is really a big deal in your life right now, this might be a hard passage. It might make you even more anxious that we're even talking about it right now. But, but I want you to hear right now, I want you to see right now that it's such a big deal to Jesus He doesn't want you to be anxious. Hear that with compassion. He he doesn't want you to even be in that place. He's trying to help you out of that place. He's not trying to make it more difficult for you. He's trying to actually lift the burden for you and help you in this particular passage. Jesus doesn't want you to suffer from anxiety or worry, and so he teaches us about it. Because some kind of anxiety is a sin, he doesn't want you to continue in it. Because the world is broken and you might be anxious with it, he wants to help you in that. 
And so that's why he says, really famous verse, Philippians 4, verse 6, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, make your request known to God. He's not saying, don't be anxious. He's saying, I don't want you to be anxious, so let me help you with that. So we're discovering today freedom from anxiety. And I think this passage shows us in three different ways how we can find freedom from anxiety. If you're taking notes, number one this morning is this. Declare the reason for anxiety. Declare the reason for the anxiety that's going on within you. Now, I want you to see here an understanding of anxiety from Jesus' standpoint. I want you to see what, unpack a couple of verses here to kind of give more definition to this issue of anxiety, the way Jesus is saying it. He lays down the main point and principle at the very beginning. He says, don't be anxious about your life. He then says it later. He says, don't be anxious about any of these things. He's rebuking worry. The word that's being used here in the text is murminate. It means to be over-anxious. It means to be constantly in fear and worry. You're obsessing about this. And what he ultimately is saying is, if you are worrying in that way, you are not trusting me. And there's a sin of unbelief that needs to be dealt with within you. He's saying here, many times when we're worrying, what we're saying is, God, I don't trust you or your competency or that you have my best in your mind. What we're believing is, I know better than you. God, I know better than you about this. I don't think you really know the best for me, so I'm going to try to control whatever's going on here. And the result is, instead of having any sort of peace in our lives, we're nervous with worry because it's incompatible to try to trust God and then try to control him. You can't do both. You can't have two masters. He's just told us in the paragraph beforehand. So let me show you three things here that that we are doubting when we're anxious, according to this text. Let the text diagnose you. Don't, Don't reverse it. Let the text diagnose you. The first thing I want you to see is that anxiety is outward evidence that I doubt God's created design. I'm doubting the way he created things. That is what, that's what he's saying here in verse 25. After he says, don't be anxious about your life, what you will eat, what you will drink, what, about your body, what you're going to put on. He's saying, I've created things in a certain fashion and, and you don't have to worry about this because he's making an argument from light to heavy. He's saying this, since God has given you life, don't worry about the food that you need for the life. And since God has given you a body, don't worry about the clothing that you need to put on it. God's going to take care of the lesser things because he values the more important things that he's created for you. And so this focus is, if you focus on the lesser things, it's going to make you miserable. You're going to worry. And he's saying anxiety is a doubting of God's creation, that he created you, but he's not going to take care of you. Here's the second thing. Anxiety is an outward evidence that you doubt God's character. Look at what it says in verse 26. Look at the birds of the air, and they neither sow nor reap nor they gather, uh, reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Notice something really significant as I was looking at this verse and studying it. 
it starts, he's talking about the birds of the air, right? And I was thinking, well, that's kind of the creation thing. But then I saw it's actually about his character because of how he talks about the Father. Notice he's talking about the birds and how they, they don't need to worry about things. They're not anxious about anything. And it says it's because your heavenly Father feeds them. Notice it doesn't say because the bird's heavenly Father feeds them. It's saying because your heavenly Father feeds them. Something really important that's being said here. We, we can see that God created things, and they're good. They're very good. God created animals, and he cares for animals. And so he created humans to care for animals. But there's something different between animals and us. We are made in God's image, and he gave us dominion over them to take care of them. And so he's using, again, from a lesser to a greater, an argument here about birds, but then identifying that the father is not the bird's father, it's our father. And Jesus is saying that the father is taking direct interest in the lives of his creation. He doesn't just provide food, but he's so actively involved that the picture is that it's God putting his hand down with bird seed to help the birds be able to eat. In that, I want you to see that God is not aloof, and he's not uninvolved. One of the great lies that our culture believes is that there is a God, but he's not actively involved in the things of today. And so many times our anxiety comes from that. I think that God's out there, but I'm just wondering why he's not actually taking care of me, because it doesn't feel that way right here in the moment. And so then I think that he's there, but he's not actually, actually involved. And over and over in Scripture, what we see is that God is always the one reaching his hand out and making sure that the care is given to the birds or to us that are in need. The point is this, if our Father is involved in the rest of creation, how much more is He going to be involved in His creation of humans, His own children made in His image? Here's a third thing we doubt. Not just His creation and His character, but anxiety is an outward evidence that I doubt in God's care. He goes on to talk about the lilies, right? Consider the lilies in the grass. Consider how... The clothing of the lily flower on is provided for the grass. Notice that, that that clothing, they don't have to work for it. They neither toil nor spin. They don't work to do that. And yet, it's so much better, the illustration is, than the richest king in Israel's history, Solomon. You don't think Solomon had some pretty awesome clothes? I don't know what they look like. They probably look weird to us today, Right? But whatever it was, it was, it was, he was the king. He would have had the best of those things. And he's saying, listen, the lilies are better clothed than that. God's going to take care of the least of his creation, so he'll take care of you. That's the whole thing with the grass in those verses. Think about grass. Think about how unremarkable grass actually is, unless you have to mow it, right? I kind of hate that, but... But what you, you mow, it, you get, it gets cut. It, it, it lays there. It's dead. It's burnt up in this particular illustration. And yet God provides better clothing to grass, which is worthless and is over in just a moment, than he gave to Solomon. Don't you think then he'll take care of you? Then he says in verse 27, look at this. And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? saying here, understand the uselessness of anxiety. Now, 
I'll just tell you this. I think the Lord already probably understands that we think anxiety is useless. I don't think any of us are like, I want to be anxious. I think anxiety is a really valuable and helpful thing to have. Nobody's saying that. And, And Jesus isn't insulting us, but he is pointing out something really important here. He's saying, he's reminding us something we already know. And the truth is that if we're, that we are not able to add anything to life by being involved in the activity of worry and anxiety. Stressing over our well-being and our security and our life doesn't have power to prolong our life in any ways. In fact, science informs us it actually makes things worse, right? You know, that if you're, if you're anxious and worrisome, like that actually takes years off your life. That could actually cause a crisis in your life. And in all of this, Jesus is saying, notice, here's the reason why. And the reason why anxiety happens, it has no worth and value, you understand that, but, but why are we involved in it? Because we doubt his creation and we doubt his character and we doubt his care. And that's not worth it. It's not worth it to doubt those things about him. He's saying here that the Lord is going to take care of his creation and so he will take care of you. So why do you worry? We all do. (laughs) What are you doubting? Is really what the text is trying to surface here. When you worry, what is it that you're doubting? When I said in point number one, declare why you're anxious, I'm not talking about the circumstances. I'm talking about the internal belief system that, that has something that's broken inside of you that needs to be fixed. Are you doubting his created order? Are you doubting his character? Are you doubting his care? You see, we got to understand what it is that's broken to be able to fix it. And if you're just always anxious and anxious and anxious and nobody ever gives you a diagnosis that allows you to then fix it, that's a problem and Jesus doesn't leave us that way (laughs) because he wants there to be something different. He doesn't want you to be anxious. He's not saying don't be anxious and he's angry about it. He's saying don't be anxious and I, and I want you to be out of that state. So what is it that's broken? Can you identify that? Do you understand why you're worrying? I mean, you write it down right now in your notes, on your phone. I worry because I'm worried about my job because I'm worried about my kids because, I'm worried about my grades because, and really get to the reason that Jesus has identified is what causes anxiety in our lives. So Jesus here is trying to help us discover freedom from anxiety, and he first says, here are the reasons, and calling you to identify that in your own life so you can, so something can be done about it. Here's the second thing he wants you to do. He doesn't want you just to see the problem. Now he wants you to dig out the root of anxiety. Now he wants you to, once you've identified what's going on and what things are, need to be renovated, now he wants you to dig to the very root of what that is, what's causing that to allow you to be freed from it. So what is the root of anxiety? When I talk about root, I mean the thing at the very bottom that's under the surface. You have all these circumstances above that cause anxiety. You've, you've looked at, oh, there's some reasons that Jesus identifies for, I, for anxiety. But what's at the very bottom of that? What's holding anxiety still rooted into the ground in your life? The Bible tells us. The Bible tells us. Did you catch it? As we read through this passage earlier, 
Did you see the reason Jesus gives for anxiety? It's a few verses down. Let's look at verse 30 together. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Here's the root. Here's the bottom. Whenever you see the word O in the Bible, like it's a word but it's only one letter, (laughs) it's really the idea of, behold, look at this. It's supposed to be a speed bump to really get your attention to something really important that's being said. And so we oftentimes in English, we just read over the word oh, right? Oh, it's just kind of like a filler. Um, that's not what it is. It's supposed to be like, focus on this. This is where it is. Do you care what anxiety is? It is unbelief. Oh, you of little faith. Oh, you who aren't trusting to the size that you should be in me. The root of our anxiety is that we trust something or someone more than we trust God. Often ourselves, sometimes other things. And remember, the the context tells us earlier, you can't trust God in money. You, You can't trust God in worry is what's being said. You're going to idolize one, worship one or the other. There's not a halfway medium between them all. So Jesus says... Oh, you of little faith. How did you hear Jesus say that when he said it? Don't be anxious about you love life, oh, you of little faith. Is that how you heard it? I fear that a lot of us hear it that way. And that's what turns us off to God because we hear the wrong emotions when we read the text. We think God's angry with us. Oh, you of little faith, you need to, you need to get better faith. You, you, come on, just be stronger in this. Which has never helped somebody with anxiety. That's not how Jesus says this. He, he talks about this, and, and then he says, oh, you of little faith. I want you to have more faith. I want you to, your faith to be built. I want you to see the problems that you're doubting me in and, and believe in these things in me. He's pleading with you. He's asking you. He's, listen, not because he's lesser than you, but because he knows the right solution. And in all of this, instead of Jesus saying, stop it, or accuse you of this, he's saying, this is hard and I want to help you grow in this. And I want you to see here that there's a connection between anxiety and idolatry. But hear that right. He's not accusing. He's lovingly saying to you, I want to help you with something here. I want to help you see something. When we worry, we replace God with a lesser God. Idolatry is beneath every sin. Martin Luther explained this. He talked about the Ten Commandments and how the first commandment uh, of all the Ten Commandments begins with the command not to have any idols. Why? Why does that come first? Why is that the first thing? Because the fundamental motivation for every sin is idolatry. We never break the other commandments without breaking this one first. So, for example, when you lie, when you lie to somebody about something, the 
the lie is a sin, the lie is a problem, but, but what you've actually done is you've put something on the throne above God and that has caused you to think that it's okay now to do this sinful thing called lying. We would not lie unless we first made something more important than God. Maybe it's human approval. Maybe it's reputation. If I don't lie to you, you're going to think worse of me, so I'm, going to, I'm just going to tell this little white lie. Maybe it's because you want power over somebody. All of those things become more important and valuable to your heart than the grace of God, and so you do something sinful, whatever the sin happens to be. And here we're seeing we got to dig out the root of anxiety, which Jesus calls unbelief. We need to identify what is the thing that we're believing in, the lesser idol that causes me to not believe God and therefore get anxious. So let's think about idolatry for just a moment. Idolatry is not just bowing down to a statue or a piece of wood. It's not that little object that's been carved that's sitting on a shelf. It's not, it's not that massive statue before the temple. It, it, idols definitely take those forms, but the issue of idolatry is much more than the carved image itself. I love what Tim Keller has defined it as. He says it this way. When you look to something created, some created thing to give you what only God can give you, that is idolatry. An idol is anything in your life that is so central to your life that you can't have a meaningful life if you lose it. Which is so much more than like I don't have a wood statue in my house. The fact of the matter is there are many things that become idols in our life. So how do we identify what an idol is? I would say that there's at least three diagnostic questions, probably more, but I would just start with this. If you're looking for idols in your life, ask this question. What do you enjoy daydreaming about? It seems so innocent. But I catch myself dreaming about one of those really big pickup trucks with those awesome tires and the big snorkel on it so I can go through the water. and I dream about all sorts of... It seems so innocent, and yet what I find is that when I identify what I regularly daydream about, it often is pointing to the thing that I desire, the things that I desire that are pointing to something other than the Lord. It's not wrong to want a big truck, but it's wrong when I fixate on that and when it becomes so important to me. Oftentimes, we see in our strongest affections the pathway to what it is that is on the throne of our hearts, the idol that is controlling my life, the thing that absorbs my heart and my imagination. So that perfect house in the neighborhood or that, man, if I was just, if I was married to that person, it would be awesome or those vacations look really good. What do you dream about? Here's a second diagnostic question. What do you spend your money on? Where's your treasure? Which Jesus just talked about. It might be clothing. It might be your kids. It might be a status symbol of a car or a boat or house or whatever it is. But early on in my Christian walk, somebody said to me, and I believe that it's so helpful, hey, every once in a while, just take a look at your checkbook and see what you're spending on. That's going to point to the thing that's most important to you. Here's another diagnosis question. What do you fear? 
not just what do you want and what do you hope for, but what are you afraid of and you hope doesn't happen? Again, fear is not a wrong thing. It's a God-created emotion. Some of those things are not wrong, but when you always are fixating on those things, think about it this way. When you pray that something doesn't happen and then it does happen, how do you respond? Anger and tears and I don't believe God anymore. And What devastates you? What could devastate you? Emotions are the crumbs that lead to what I idolize. When you follow the crumbs of your negative emotions and your super positive emotions, you will identify what your heart idolizes, what you worship, what you value most. And in that, many times, our idols fall into some categories. So I brought a little chart along with me here today. If you look at the chart, you, you can see what you're seeking, the price you're willing to pay, the greatest nightmare, what others feel, and then the problem emotions. Notice in the problem emotions, there's all sorts of anxiety that is constantly figuring, filling that up. Many times, anxiety is one of the primary things that point to another emotion underneath it and vice versa. But look at the very bottom line here. Notice if there, there's anxiety and you stew and you're distressed... Often what others feel is they feel condemned and blamed by you. What often is your greatest nightmare is being uncertain or out of control. What your price you're willing to pay is, I'm willing to be lonely and, and, uh, and I'm willing to sacrifice the good of others to get my thing. And it's all pointing to a control idol that's going on in your life. Now, I use this chart all the time when we talk about various ways to diagnose sins and understand sin and see what's going on and follow the crumbs of my emotions to get to the place where I can see what's really going on. If we're going to dig out the heart of idolatry, which is unbelief, oftentimes what's going on is control or comfort or approval or power are the idols that are on my throne. And when I don't get my idols, I get really anxious. So think about this, the control idol. Why am I so frustrated that the project at work is not going the way that I envisioned? Or the project at home? I've managed all the details, but it's not working out. I've done all this work, but the team is so frustrated with me that they're quitting. I hate the uncertainty of not knowing the outcome, and I'm lonely, and I'm devastated that it's not going my way. The reason you're anxious now is this control idol. And what you're frustrated with is that your idol is not doing its job. It's a false god and it's fake. So you expect it to do certain, deliver certain things to you, but it doesn't. You're trying to control God instead of trusting in Him. And it's not working out and it's making everything angsty. Tim Keller tells the story of a woman named Anna who desperately wanted to have children but was told that she could not. She tried and she tried and she tried and eventually she had two healthy kids. But having two kids didn't actually make her dreams come true. You see, she had kids and yet she had this overpowering drive to give her kids a perfect life and so it made it impossible for her to enjoy them. She became overprotective and fearful and anxious, and she needed to control every detail of life, which made the family miserable. Her idol? The perfect family, which wasn't delivering for her. 
Because idols don't satisfy and they cause all sorts of emotional issues, anxiety at the top of the list in her and in her children. She was ruining her kids' lives. Not because she loved her kids too much, but rather because she loved God too little in relationship to them. One of the great church fathers, Augustine, said, said it this way. I think it's so applicable. He says, love little things little, medium things medium, big things big, and ultimate things ultimately What he was speaking to, and he has a whole writing about this, is that oftentimes what happens is we get our loves disordered. We make a little thing ultimate. In the case of this woman, I would say her family is a pretty big thing, but it's not an ultimate thing. But because she was trying to make it an ultimate thing, it it wasn't delivering for her, and she was wrecking the lives of her and her children. Now, praise God, there's a good result that happens here. Even though she was crushing her kids under the weight of her expectation, she came to the realization, Keller says, that she said, says this, If I really knew God's love, then I could accept less than perfect kids and wouldn't be crushing them. If God's love meant more to me than my children, I could love my kids less selfishly and more truly. What's the root of your anxiety? What's the idol that isn't delivering, and yet you constantly are trusting in it more than God? Can you identify the sin beneath the sin? That's what Jesus is doing when he says, oh, you have little faith. He's saying there's a sin beneath the sin. There's this unbelief in me. So we see this all the time. We see the individual who's a health nut. Health is an important thing to steward for the Lord, and yet they are worshiping their control idol as they go about their health thing, and it ruins their lives. We see it in beauty all the time. There's an approval idol that is driving so many things. I think we should seek to be beautiful for the glory of God, but not for our own sense of approval. I think there's a success thing that is always going on that is really about power. I want to be successful, not for the Lord, but so that I can be powerful in this life. There's this thing where I just, I just need some space, dude. I just need some space because you have a comfort idol that's sitting on top of your heart. We already talked about the family and how that can be an idol of approval that's going on. All of these things can stem from our idols, but the idols never deliver, they never satisfy, they never bring joy, and they always create anxiety. And this root of anxiety is coming because of an unbelief about God. So what is it that you're trusting other than God? Can you identify that? Not just doubting God about His creation and His character and His care, but what instead are you uh, trusting in? What is it that you're putting your hope in? What is it that you want, to, uh, want it to do for you? We need to know what the root of our anxiety is and dig it out. And then here's the third thing. As we discover freedom from anxiety, we need to depend upon the remedy for anxiety that Jesus gives. Praise God. Jesus doesn't just tell us what the problems are and what not to believe in, but he tells us what the remedy is. He tells us what we are to do. There's three ways that Jesus teaches us to focus on our Father when we're anxious. 
Look with me in verse 31. It says this, Therefore do not be anxious about uh, anxious saying what shall we eat what shall we drink or what shall we wear for the gentiles that is unbelievers seek after all these things and your heavenly father knows that you need them all. He's saying here worry is practical atheism and an affront to God. You may say you believe one thing but how you live is demonstrating you don't actually believe in him. And practical atheism drives us to try to take control of our desires. But he's saying that doesn't have to be you, not you. You don't need to be anxious because you have a father who knows exactly what you need. Jesus is preaching this message. He's saying the kingdom has arrived. If you'll trust me as the king, if you'll trust me, you don't have to be anxious and worrying any longer. The remedy here is the rule of Jesus Christ in your heart. Exclusively. Nothing added to it. Here's the second part of the remedy. We need to sell out. We need to sell out and seek God's kingdom and his righteousness. That's what it said in verse 33. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Here's the positive command. What does it mean to seek the kingdom? From the context here, the kingdom is where God's good life-giving will is done. And the Father is fully known and enjoyed. And he's saying, live as if God is actively present. Because he is. Think about the most common command in the Bible. Do you know what it is? Fear not. Fear not is the most common, most repeated command in God's word. But, but listen, it's not just fear not. That's never the whole command. Fear not because what? You say it. Fear not because I'm with you. That, that, that always goes together. I'm with you. I'm together with you. Uh, seek me. Uh, seek these things because I'm, you can trust me. I, I'm going to be, I am with you. So the other night we had an invitation over to a friend's house and they have little kids, like four and under, like three of them. And so we got to interacting with them and we got to playing hide and seek. And the little two-year-old boy, like two-and-a-half-year-old boy, right, he'd go hide and then he would go like this. I'm here! Which absolutely destroyed the fun of the game, right? But think about that. Jesus is saying, seek first. Seek, look, hide and seek. Look for me. Listen, he's not trying to do that to to play with you in some way, but because the enjoyment of what he's trying to show you is found not in him saying, look at me, I'm here, but in the, like, find me in this difficult thing that you're anxious about, and you'll find peace. Notice, not just seek the kingdom, but seek his righteousness. He's not talking here about justification, but about conforming to God's word. Seek after my ways. Seek after my will. Seek after the way I have told you to live life, and that is going to be what removes anxiety from your life. The remedy here is pursuing or selling out to God's priorities. When we seek the things that are on God's heart, He will take care of the things that are on your heart. Here's the third part of the remedy be present, leave the future. In his hands. Be present right here now in the moment. That's what we're talking about. 
Verse 34 is so helpful. Notice he says, Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own troubles. I love this verse for a number of reasons. But notice, Jesus is here is teaching us to focus on the actual troubles that we face today rather than focus on the possibilities of troubles tomorrow. And in this, he is saying this, since therefore, notice the word therefore, since therefore we can trust that by seeking the Father we're going to be received continually into his care, we are free to live in the moment and leave the future to his hands. I love how Jesus offers comfort here too. Notice what he's acknowledging. Every day will have trouble of its own. He's acknowledging that it makes sense to worry in the things of today. (laughs) We live in a troubled world. And the longer we live, the more we see there are no guarantees that life is fragile and that we're going to struggle with worry. Yet what I love is that Jesus also says that he struggled with this himself in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 17, he says this. Oops, long verse. Hebrews 2, verse 17. Therefore, he, Jesus, had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Jesus was made like us in every way. He was without sin, but he identified with our suffering, and not just our suffering, but so much more. He became human. He understands our struggle. He has experienced more sorrow and stress than anybody possibly today could have lived with, and he promises to be empathetic towards us who even today are stressed and anxious. Think about that, how Jesus actually lived this out in that most intense moment at Gethsemane. As we end here today, I want you to depend upon Jesus for the remedy. I want you to depend upon the one who has done everything that's needed to give you freedom in your anxiety. In Matthew chapter 26, let's talk about Jesus praying at Gethsemane. He went with them to that place and he said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be anxious. Do you see it? He began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. Going a little further, he fell down on his face and prayed, my father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. He came to the disciples, found them sleeping, and he said to Peter, could you not watch with me? And then in Luke chapter 22, it tells us, he went back and he prayed and he sweat drops of blood. That's how anxious he was about all he was about ready to do. In this intense anguish and sorrow, the anxiety of pointing, point, the anxiety is seen in the sweating of blood. Scripture records that in the midst of all of that, there was only one time from his arrest to his death, including this time in the garden, that Jesus cried out in a loud voice, and it was on the cross. At that most anxious of moments, Jesus bore the weight of our sin on his shoulders, and the Father looked away 
causing the suffering servant to cry out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The spiritual pain of this feeling of abandon exceeded all the physical pain that Jesus endured on our behalf. He experienced the greatest anxiety and showed us that it's living and dying separated from God. In other words, you're never going to have your anxiety taken care of unless you're attached to God. And because Jesus was separated when he paid the price of your sin, you can now live sold out in the care of your Creator if you trust Him. God's going to take care of His people. God's going to take care of His people. He's going to take care of you. So you end today, we're going to sing a song. Worship team, if you want to come. And as we begin to process further what has been said in God's Word here today, I want you to remember that this is Jesus not demanding you not to be anxious, but saying, I don't want you to be anxious. And I want you to see the remedy for that. And if you would trust me, I'll take care of whatever it is that's causing you anxiety. By the way, living in this life, it's not like I'll take care of the anxiety, you'll never be anxious again. Every day has its trouble. But when you have those feelings of anxiety, trust me, trust me. Turn your eyes to me. Look at me. Trust that I created things and I have a character and a care for you that if you'll trust in me, believe in me, you don't have to be anxious. I'll help you with that. Anybody want that? Anybody need that in their life right now? So I want to pray and then I want to sing this simple song really as a reminder and fuel for your week, for the anxiety of today. And then don't be anxious about tomorrow, but when tomorrow comes, there'll be something probably to be anxious about, and you're going to need to remember all that this song has to say. Let's pray and ask Him for help with it first. Heavenly Father, I thank You for Your Word. And I thank You as we hear Your Word, we hear Your tone, one of love and care, one of concern, one that says, I'm with You, I'll always be with You, I'll never leave You, turn and look to me when you're anxious. God, we recognize that for some, there's just anxious moments. Lord, for others, there's an anxiety because of the brokenness of this world that continues and continues. And Lord, please help. We need your help. Whether it's just a moment or it extends over time, God, we, we need your words that you don't want us to be anxious. We need your help in living that out. And so, Lord, would you help us to turn our eyes to you and to what your word has said here today in those things. It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen.